Dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder and president of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. That is a term that I have coined to try to describe what has been a multi-generational fight involving assorted enemies, all of whom have one thing in common. They seem to seek our destruction. Today's time has uh, a number of contenders for the distinction of the most dangerous of our enemies uh, in this phase of the war for the free world, but arguably one of the most dangerous is that that our friend Andy McCarthy has described as adherence to the ideology of Sharia supremacism, or simply Sharia. This, of course, is a doctrine that is not only deeply intertwined with Islam, the authorities of the faith say it is Islam. So to discuss this topic and the implications of the threat that its adherents pose to us, I am thrilled to say we have a full hour with one of the country's preeminent experts on these matters. He has the unlikely background of being a PhD in physics, of all things, a successful businessman, but has become a self-taught and extraordinarily knowledgeable expert on the doctrine of Sharia, the teachings more generally of Islam and Muhammad, and the implications of all of that for the rest of us. His name is Bill Warner. You can find a dozen books to his credit, including, notably, A Simple Quran and Sharia Law for Non-Muslims. I consider him a friend, and it is certainly a great privilege to have him with us. Bill Warner, thank you so much for coming back. Great to have you for a good, long conversation. Hello, Frank. Glad to be with you again. So let's start, Bill, with that proposition. Sharia is a phenomenon that is driving uh, what you call political Islam, uh, a sensible term. What is the doctrine of Sharia, and how does it manifest itself within Islam? Well, it manifests itself throughout Islam. As a matter of fact, the Sharia is where the rubber hits the road. Islamic doctrine is found in the Quran, the Sirah, the life of Muhammad, and the his, uh, traditions of the Hadith. But these are books that you don't need to be digging around in just to find an answer on how to live your life as a Muslim. So the Sharia takes, let's say, the idea of divorce. What's the proper way to divorce a wife in Islam? The Sharia takes everything that's said in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, and reduces it down to some quotes so that you can look up the subject, how to divorce in Islam, without reading the Quran and doing all the other reading. So it's a practical manual on how to lead the life of a Muslim. And when people say, Bill, that, well, there are different kinds of Sharia, um, that some is more moderate than others, or, or it's, there's really no codification of it at all, it's, it's pretty much whatever you want it to be if you're a Muslim, how do you respond to that? Well, I'm afraid that's a bogus argument. There are schools of Sharia. 
But the fact is, is that they all depend on the same Quran. They all depend on the same Sunnah of Muhammad. So there are different interpretations. But here's my point of view, Frank. 35% of the Quran is in the reliance of the travelers devoted to the five pillars. That is how to be a Muslim. The rest of it is devoted to other issues which involve me as well. So the only part of Sharia I care about is the part that applies to me, the non-Muslim. And all the schools are uniform on what they say about the non-Muslim. He's hated by Allah, and his proper role is to be a demi after jihad. So this portion of the uh, reliance of the traveler, and this is an important uh, book to be introducing into this discussion, Bill Warner, uh, 65% of it uh, involves, as you say, people who are non-Muslims. And by that, I gather you are describing how Muslims should relate to and, well, dominate, for that matter, the non-Muslims in the world. Is that right? Well, there are two basic principles of Islam. One is uh, supremacy, and the other is dualism. You see, what makes Islam so tricky to deal with is, is there are two different Islams in the sense of there are two different Qurans and two different Muhammads. Uh, a logical man would say, well, which one's the real one? But the dualistic answer is they're both equally real. Very briefly, Muhammad preached the religion of Islam for 13 years and converted 150 people to Islam. He went to Medina where he became a politician and a jihadist, and there he became overwhelmingly successful as a politician. And a warlord, lest we forget. Yes, he's a warlord. Or it's the politics of jihad. Which one's the real one? They're both real. That's dualism. They're both real, but Bill Warner, am I correct that one is to be seen as better or dominant or the operating code of, uh, of Islam under, under, again, Sharia? Well, what happened was, even in Muhammad's day, the Arabs said to Muhammad, says, you know, you say this this year, but last year you said that. Which one is it? It wasn't just Muhammad who was saying it. It was Allah who was saying it, was it not? Right. Well, that's, that's what Muhammad said Allah said, because Allah had three verses about abrogation, which is the latter verse is better or stronger than the earlier verse. Now, the earlier verse can't be wrong, Frank, because it's Allah's words, the perfect God. But the latter one, the one that abrogated the former one, was what he was giving you when you were ready for it, as I understand it. You were able to receive the better version. So what we've got then, as I sort of distill this in my layman's terms, Bill Warner, is we've got, again, using the uh, software metaphor, an operating code for Islam that is subject to different interpretations, perhaps, but drawing upon the same sources. And the portion of it, the, the version of it, the substance of it that is more better, <laughs> more perfect, is that which came after. And, and how would you characterize uh, that second Quran or that second Muhammad? Well, let's use some statistics. Let's count how many verses in the Meccan Quran, the early Quran, are devoted to jihad, and there are none. But then in the Medinan Quran, 24% of the Medinan Quran is about jihad. 24% is not a verse or two, Frank. It's a systemic doctrine. So that, that's how we see. And by the way, Allah says that the jihad part is better than the earlier part, which is the peaceful part. It's been pointed out to me, Bill Warner, that the last two passages, and again, of course, as you know so well, and you've uh, you've helped the rest of us understand, Bill, there is 
a certain trajectory to the Quran, but it's not organized um, in a chronological fashion. But chronologically understood, the last two passages of the Quran are, in fact, the most virulently jihadists of the whole lot, the interfaith uh, relations piece and, and the actual conduct of jihad itself. Is that correct? That is quite correct. And by the way, the Qurans that I produce put everything in the right chronological order. It's no dark secret. It's just that the way the Quran was put together at first is kind of like scrambled eggs. But everybody knows what the correct sequence of verses is. That's been known since first days. How is that expressed, uh, Bill? I, I've, I've seen you know, them uh, arrayed chronologically, of course, in certain books, including yours. But I, what is it that gives you know, confidence that we know which was the Meccan period, the more benign period that came before, and which is the more intolerant or jihadist period of uh, Medina that came after? Well, actually, in my book, Simple Quran, in the back, I give you some clues as to how to do this. But basically... The verses have been known chronologically since the first time, but I'll tell you what the Quran is like. Imagine I handed you a murder mystery, Frank, and what I had done before I handed it to you, I cut off the spine and then rearranged all the chapters in order of length. So you may not find what the crime was until you did the last one, read the last chapter. But if I gave you that book, you'd give it back to me and say, Bill, I can't understand this. There's no plot. So the, Quran, the classic Quran doesn't have a plot to it, whereas the real Quran does. The plot of the Quran is it begins with a hymn to God and ends in political domination of the world. Right. And this is not simply um, the random musings of a divine figure uh, conveyed to his prophet. This is directive um, for the followers. And we'll be talking about some of the manifestations of those directions with one of the country's great authorities on the Quran and Sharia and Jihad and Islam, Dr. Bill Warner of politicalislam.com, right after this. Visit us at facebook.com slash securefreedom with Frank Gaffney. Listening to Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney from the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. We're back. Bill Warner, a man who has really established himself as one of the great authorities about uh, the challenge we're facing from jihad and Sharia supremacism, is with us for a full hour, I'm very pleased to say, here at Secure Freedom Radio. He is the author of uh, 12 books. Uh, you can find out all about them at politicalislam.com. Two of particular note are A Simple Quran and Sharia Law for Non-Muslims. Uh, Bill, we've talked a bit about jihad, but I thought it'd be useful to sort of define that term as well. There are those, as you know so well, who have insisted that it is simply about personal struggle trying to be a better Muslim, and I wanted to get your thoughts as to whether that's an accurate reading of the entirety of um, the literature and, and uh, sacred texts of Islam, or is that, uh, well, some have called it taqiyya. 
Well, let me deal with this in the way that I love to, which is to use numbers. Let's take the Hadith, the Traditions of Muhammad, as written by Bukhari. There's about 7,000 Hadiths, little traditions, and of them, 21% are about jihad. So we have about 1,400 traditions about jihad. Now, if we take these 1,400 traditions and put them in two piles, one, the inner struggle, and the other is the jihad of killing Kafirs, we'll discover that only 2% of the, actually fewer, less than 2% of the Hadith are about jihad as an inner struggle that's trying to improve yourself. 98% of the Hadith about jihad are killing Kafirs. So we can say that, yes, 2% is peaceful and inner struggle in common with a lot of people, but the other 98% is exclusively killing Kafirs, which is unique to Islam. So there's the answer. And notice I'm not saying that they're wrong when they say it's inner struggle. I'm just saying they're only 2% right. Yeah. It, it, this is one of the wonderful qualities you bring to this uh, as a man trained in physics. You, you, you can help give us a sort of quantitative analysis of, uh, of, of this otherwise somewhat abstract uh, proposition. Someone told me one time, says, you teach Islam like it's an, like it's an algebra or, or geometry class. <laughs> exactly right. And it's extremely helpful that you do. Okay. So having established that Sharia is, uh, according to the sacred text of Islam, uh, overwhelmingly about jihad, of a non-personal betterment kind, Walk us through the ways it manifests itself in our time, Bill Warner. What is jihad? And Bill, uh, most of us since 9-11 particularly have come to associate that term with uh, terrifying acts of violence. Just today there was one, of course, in Australia, it appears. Um, what is uh, the, uh, the quantitative uh, preference given to the violent kind of jihad in, uh, in the Quranic literature. Uh, is, that, is that overwhelmingly preferred? Well, there are different kinds of jihad. Let's establish this. Jihad is not holy war. Jihad means struggle. So there are many ways to struggle in the effort of uh, fighting in the cause of Allah. The most common one we think of is jihad of the sword, that is, or the truck or whatever else, or bomb or whatever else, but it's violent jihad. And that's what we associate with Islamic State, for instance, or Al-Qaeda. But those are not the most important forms of jihad. The Quran lays out that other forms of jihad are giving money, and Muslims are very generous about doing this. The other kind of jihad is with the speech and with the pen. So there are four kinds of jihad according to the Quran, which is uh, sword, pen, speech, and money. Now, these can also be re-sliced and re-diced in other ways. But the point we want to realize is, is that Jihad has many formations, and I'm going to say something that may be rather shocking. The jihad of violence, or the sword, which is practiced by Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, is the least dangerous form of jihad. The most dangerous form of jihad is civilizational jihad, which practices money, speech, and writing. And for that, we have the Muslim Brotherhood. So what I'm saying, Frank, is the Muslim Brotherhood is far more dangerous to America than Al-Qaeda or Islamic State. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, of course, with that. Uh, let, let's just, before we get to the Brotherhood, though, because I want to take some time to really develop that with you fully, Bill Warner, um, just hit a, another way, I guess, of characterizing um, the, the challenge, and that is uh, a, a, uh, a practice known as Hidra. Uh, which, of course, goes back to the very beginning of the faith. Uh, would you talk a little bit about that and uh, the role uh, population 
uh, or demographic jihad uh, plays in the larger program? Well, now then we're really getting dangerous. The hijra is migration. Hijra is so important that the Islamic calendar is based on when Muhammad left Mecca and went to Medina, that is, when he migrated. When we In America, we're taught that immigration is due to political persecution or poverty or something. But there's another reason that Muslims immigrate, and that is to establish Islam as the doctrine of the civilization they've moved into. Why do they do this? Because Muhammad did that. So Muhammad, when he went to Medina, established a political rule, and that's the best part of Islam, because that's the final form of Islam. So to the extent that we have been watching uh, these immense demographic flows of Muslims from uh, primarily the Middle East and North Africa, uh, though elsewhere in South and East Asia, uh, I guess as well, uh, Central Asia, into Europe, um, notably Western Europe, uh, what does that signal, knowing what you do about the Hidra and its traditions and, and obligations on the faithful Muslim? Let's examine what happened to Muhammad. Muhammad, before the Hijra, was a failure. He only converted 150 people in 13 years. After the Hijra, he was successful through the use of jihad and politics. So the Islamic calendar, as I've already mentioned earlier, is based on this. The reason is, is that Hijra brings on jihad. Jihad brings success. So the Hijra is the first part of stepping into the place of putting the Sharia in place. And that means the civilizational laws of the ones they move, the nation they move into, simply disappear. And that's the object is to make them disappear, right? The whole object of Islam is for the whole world to be ruled by Sharia. That's the object. Yeah, to the extent that the uh, faithful Muslim is then not only bringing their faith, but bringing their political uh, doctrine, their ideology, if you will, their Sharia program with them. Uh, it, it follows uh, like the night, the day, uh, does it not, that there will be um, a challenge made to host nations that are accepting these refugees in or, or immigrants of other kinds um, in the expectations that uh, perhaps they, uh, they're simply in need and need to be provided uh, temporarily. A safe haven, or or they may simply be, you know, good uh, workers who will then uh, fill the factories of the country in question. Uh, but inexorably, they will be forced to submit if they're not careful. Is that right? This is quite correct. By the way, let me speak about the uh, workers. I was speaking with one of the politicians in Austria, and he said, we have many Turks in, our, in Austria. He says, but only 20% of them work, and they've been here for generations. So the goodness of work does not come out much for the migrants. Yeah, I think that's probably been true elsewhere as well. But um, it does it does create, as a result, a a social welfare burden on many of these societies uh, that isn't explained simply by difficulties in learning the language or uh, acclimating to the climate or the uh, or the culture. Well, they, they, he also pointed out that in these Turkish areas, they don't even use Austrian and Germans. They don't use them for the street signs. Which uh, gives rise to the phenomenon of no-go zones, I think, inexorably. And we're going to come back and discuss that in a moment with Bill Warner, uh, the driving force behind an incredible resource, politicalislam.com, uh, books, uh, videos, uh, countless articles and uh, the like are all to be found there. I 
strongly commend it to you as I do um, our further conversation with Bill, which will continue right after this. more with Frank Gaffney. We're back. We are visiting for a full hour, I'm very pleased to say, with Bill Warner. Dr. Warner is a uh, PhD in physics, of all things, but a self-taught and extraordinarily proficient expert now on matters involving, I believe, uh, the central challenge of our time in this war for the free world, and that is the effort that is believed by many of the Muslim faith, not all, but many of the Muslim faith, to be a God-directed obligation to force all the rest of us to submit to this uh, totalitarian political, military, legal doctrine they call Sharia. I was very heartened, Bill, that the president included that term in his uh, just-revealed national security strategy. And I wanted to just come back to something that you mentioned was a form of jihad that is very dangerous and almost entirely happening unattended by our uh, political class, uh, that is to say ignored or at least not taken as the threat that it is, namely a kind of financial jihad. Tell us about this term zakat and what it means and and what it's about. The zakat is one of the five pillars. It's the so-called charity tax. And the charity tax, the Quran lays out what's to be done with it. And we, Frank, you and I, are included in the charity tax. Did you know that? Because part of the charity tax is to go to those who fight in Allah's cause. That is, part of the tax on Muslims is to support violent jihad as a whole. So, yeah, I've been told, Bill, just on this point, uh, that there are eight different purposes towards which um, zakat can be applied, and that at least one, and by some counts as many as four, involve that violent kind of jihad. Is that right? This is quite correct. Because here's the thing. If Islam were a religion, you and I wouldn't be having this phone conversation. Islam is a complete civilization. It's a, it, there is nothing we can do from how we go to the bathroom, to the clothes we wear, to the food we eat, that is not dictated by Islam. Islam is a complete civilization. So therefore, when they come into our country, they start attacking us along civilizational lines. It may be as simple as, we don't want a Christmas tree where it can be seen if we're going to use the room. But any time that Muslims are there, we find that we have to do things their way. And doing them their way is part of civilizational jihad. Yeah, well, and I want to, as I say, drill down on that, because this is really the crux of it. But before we leave Zakat, Bill... Um, it's my understanding that it's not really a tithing so much in the sort of Christian or Jewish tradition as it is an obligatory tax on Muslims. Is that right? And and again, to the extent that there are Muslims who are all in on Sharia, I assume that they are fulfilling faithfully their duty to pay that tax. When you talk with some Muslims, particularly here in the United States and elsewhere in the West, um, it's clear that they're not into Sharia. They're not practicing it. They're not interested in living under it. They don't want to force the rest of us to submit to it. Are they likely to be paying this uh, zakat tax, even though they're not into it in that way? Well, we don't know how much they, of the Islam they practice. It's in Muslims, the concept of Muslim is very peculiar. For some reason or other, everyone assumes that a Muslim is fully amped up on the entire doctrine. 
and what's to be done and not done. I find that aside from the simple five pillars, that they're not really that interested in detail of the Islamic doctrine and just sort of blow it off and don't follow it. But so a Muslim, we don't know how much of Islam they practice. But the more they practice, the more they become kin to Al-Qaeda or the Muslim Brotherhood. So this is one of the secrets when we deal with the Muslim. We don't know how much of his doctrine he buys into. But we need to ask him. Yeah, it, it, we need to be extracting that from I mentioned the term taqiyya uh, previously, uh, Bill, and you, you might help us understand what that's about and how widely it's practiced and how does that affect our ability to understand, really, what uh, people believe in, and stand for. Well, taqiyya, there are several forms of deceive, deception in Islam. Islam is very peculiar in that it has a deception doctrine. As a matter of fact, there's a verse in the Quran which refers to the Jews, and Allah says, the Jews think they're deceiving me, but I am the greatest of deceivers. Now, Frank, what did I just tell you? I mean, when I read that verse, I was stunned that I am the greatest of deceivers. So here we have a dualistic ethical system in which Muslims are supposed to tell the truth to each other, but the kafir, the non-Muslim, they can lie to. There's a famous hadith when Muhammad says, who will kill Ashraf, who has offended Allah and his prophet? I will, Muhammad, but I will need to deceive him. Do I have your permission? Yes, deceive him. That is sunnah by the perfect man, the perfect Muslim. So deception is referred to many times in Islam, and so therefore there are technical forms of deception, and one of those is taqiyah, sacred lies. Meaning, it basically advancing the faith. Uh, if, that's what, if you're required to lie to do that, uh, you're good to go. Is that right? Yes, whatever, whatever advances the, fa- the faith is good and is moral, even if it's a lie. Bill, let me ask you, in this, in this regard, uh, you, you just mentioned that it's okay uh, to deceive the kufr, the, the non-believer, the infidel, but not Muslims. It seems as though the Quran is actually a bit more tolerant of treating Muslims badly as well. Indeed, it's often pointed out that the uh, the jihadists of the violent kind uh, have killed a lot more Muslims than non-Muslims. But is it also the case, Bill, that they have uh, an ability to to do that in the furtherance of the faith without uh, any any penalty or uh, finding themselves afoul of uh, the teachings of uh, Muhammad? And and would it not follow from that that they're certainly free to deceive them as well if it advances their purposes too? Well, now we get into the question of how much how much Islam does a Muslim practice, and is it the right Islam? There's another form of jihad which we haven't mentioned yet. It's what I call the jihad of purification. That is, it's part of the civil war of Islam. After Muhammad died, Abu Bakr became caliph, ruler of all of Islam. And there were many Muslims who decided, we're going to leave Islam. But, Muhammad, but Abu Bakr said, no, you're not leaving Islam. Apostasy is death. And so he killed several thousand Muslims who wanted to leave Islam. And the remainder of them said, you know, on contemplation, we like Islam a lot. And we're going to remain Muslim. He was purifying Islam. This is part of the Sunnah. So wars fought by Islam to purify Islam are part of the standard business of Islam. If the whole world became pure Islam, it would be in a constant state of war because one set of Muslims would be attacking another set of Muslims because they weren't practicing the real Islam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a a very interesting uh, video uh, at the moment uh, by um, 
Mordecai Cutter, I think it is. I, I can't remember his last name at the moment. Uh, Bill, I don't know if you've seen it. He and uh, David Yerushalmi um, did a marvelous study of uh, mosques in America a few years back. And anyway, he's he's on uh, one of the uh, Al Jazeera, I think, uh, one of the Arab programs, uh, really laying into them about the fact that you know you keep denouncing the Israelis and uh, and saying that you know the president moving the embassy of the United States to the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, is going to be a threat to peace. He said, there's no peace in the Muslim world. You guys are killing each other all the time. So don't, uh, it's, I guess, in the name of purification, right? But it's uh, it's pretty messy business. And by the way, I, I just wanted to take note of the fact you mentioned Abu Bakr. Um, Abu Bakr, of course, al-Baghdadi was the man who uh, uh, led the Islamic State uh, in its uh, uh, glory days, and I guess is still doing so, um, though the caliphate has been diminished somewhat. But um, Bill, I do want to get to uh, the the very important points that I know you want to make, and I, I want to d- develop with you on uh, this other kind of jihad that is uh, practiced um, with great proficiency, including notably in this country, by the Muslim Brotherhood, a group that we know um, from at least reporting, we've not yet seen it, um, President Obama actually signed out a presidential study directive, it was numbered 11, for the purpose of essentially embracing, engaging, legitimating, and empowering the Muslim Brotherhood. Some say it was uh, the go-code for the Arab Spring. But um, we'll talk about what the Brotherhood is up to, including here in our own country, with a distinguished student of the subject and teacher of great, great clarity, Dr. Bill Warner of politicalislam.com right after this. Go to securefreedomradio.org today. It's your freedom. It's your country. Frank Gaffney's Secure Freedom Radio. to securefreedomradio.org today. It's your freedom. It's your country. Frank Gaffney's Secure Freedom Radio. We're back for our final installment of this very special conversation with Dr. Bill Warner. He runs a terrific online resource. It's called politicalislam.com. It contains an array of books that are extremely accessible and uh, illuminating and important to our understanding of what I have said, I think, is the challenge of our time. He has described it as political Islam, the part uh, 65% of uh, Sharia that affects the rest of us. Uh, I, I think of it as that that Sharia doctrine, really. Uh, it's uh, It's not so much the pietistic practice that's of concern. It's what they intend to do to the rest of us in the name of Sharia. And Bill, you've mentioned as arguably the most dangerous form of jihad, that practiced by this group called the Muslim Brotherhood. Just give us a quick introduction to the Brotherhood and what they mean by this term, civilization jihad. Well, this Muslim Brotherhood arose after the Ottoman Empire fell. And then, so Islam's face was in the dust. There were clever scholars who realized that Muhammad succeeded not only by the use of violence, but also by other means. And so they put to these were Kutub, if I pronounce his name correctly, and Albana. 
And they put forth a different form of jihad in which they said, we're not powerful enough to go up against the Kafir with our own war machines, but we can do it with other means. So they created basically a concept of civilizational jihad, which was an overwhelmingly brilliant move. By the way, Frank, I have a great respect for the Muslim thinkers. They're given an impossible problem, and yet they make it work out right for themselves. Not everywhere, thank God, but they're certainly trying, that's for sure. And so when you hear them talking about civilization jihad, and Bill, if I may, I just want to insert a guide to its practice in our own country. This would be the explanatory memorandum on the general strategic goal of the group in North America. This is a document that, as you know, Bill, the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, leadership was given by one of their top operatives in the United States back in 1991. It really laid out uh, the secret plan for destroying, as they put it, Western civilization from within by our hands. How does that work? Uh, You've mentioned money, you've mentioned speech, you've mentioned the pen, but in practice, Bill, what does the Muslim Brotherhood do in practice in a country like this, the Brothers? Well, first off, let me say this about the explanatory memo. It is one of the most brilliant political documents I have ever read. It is simply incredible, their ability to plan. And they plan across a civilizational front. So therefore, they plan to attack our textbooks, which they've already done. By the way, there was a very clever part of it, which is they were going to no longer build mosques, but instead Islamic centers, which are more of a civilizational footprint than just a mosque, which is more similar to a church. But even though, I mean, mosques, as you know better than I, have gone back to the early days under Muhammad as a sort of multi-use facility, have they not? It can be used as an armory. It can be used as a military training ground. It can be used as a courtroom. It can be used as just a place to hang and, and talk with others. So it's just a community center. To the extent that the Muslims have been using this infrastructure of uh, mosque building, community centers, uh, and the like, the explanatory memorandum made it clear that what they were doing with that footprint, as you put it, is influence operations, was it not? And and how does that work? I mean, people have criticized me, for example, for opining and, and actually documenting the penetration of the Muslim Brotherhood into the United States government and the influence it's exercised on American policy. Uh, do you have evidence of uh, them doing that? And would that surprise you if they were? I have personal evidence, quite frankly. The FBI was persuaded to have their records purged by the Muslim Brotherhood of anything that was offensive to Islam. And I had prepared papers for FBI training. And I was told by the man who was in, had to do the actual physical purging that my files were the last ones they purged. And he said, look, these are just things like 24% of the doctrine of, of the Quran of Medina is about Islam. He said, they're just percentages. Well, they were offensive to Islam, and so therefore they were removed. So I'm giving you a personal example of how I've been impacted by the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, not just you, alas, but all the people who have been trained without the benefit of your information and and others who, like you, actually understand the nature of this enemy. And, And the reason they had to purge it, let's be clear, as you know, Bill Warner, was you were compromising their stealthy, subversive civilization jihad, were you not? I was indeed. I believe in critical thought, Frank. And what I was doing was saying, look, let's just accept what they say is true and see where it goes, and let's do our own analysis. The Muslim Brotherhood is an implacable enemy. 
they're like rust. They never sleep, and they operate across a broad front. It can be, for instance, having textbooks change so that Islam in the seventh grade now in Tennessee, you're taught that Islam was the, the golden age of Baghdad, was the greatest high point of human civilization. There's contrary information, I think, available in the, in, in the uh, non Muslim books of history, for sure. Let me ask you, when you look at what the Brotherhood is doing today, um, not just what they were trying to do in 1991, which, by the way, as you know, Bill, was something they were uh, reporting back to the mothership. That explanatory memorandum wasn't meant for our eyes. It just providentially fell into our hands. But it described what they've been doing for the previous 25 years or so. But in the 25 or six years since then, they have advanced the ball considerably. How would you characterize the status and influence and danger of the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States at the moment? The mainstream media is pretty much controlled by the Muslim Brotherhood. The FBI, its, it's top tier of executives who deal with terrorism are all operating under the influence of Muslim Brotherhood. So they're influential in the military, they're influential in law enforcement, and they're even in, influential in Christian seminaries. They press on any and all fronts, which makes them so effective. They may not get this one, but some, some other door will open and they'll go through it. Let me ask you in that connection, Bill, it appears that in the aftermath of uh, the overthrow of Mohammed Morsi in Egypt by uh, the ACC regime, uh, I'm told it's not LCC, but uh, ACC by uh, our friend Mark Helprin, the Muslim Brotherhood was substantially relocated, uh, not all of its operations, of course, and there's a very active, uh, uh, violent jihad of purification, I guess you might call it, going on in Egypt, as you know. But a lot of the operatives and leadership apparently relocated to Turkey, where they found safe haven. And uh, there was an event here in Washington last Saturday. It's gotten almost no press attention at all in the uh, the Western press, uh, which is really quite extraordinary. But about a thousand folks, I understand, were predominantly Muslim Brotherhood types, were out in front of uh, or at the back of the White House, I guess, um, holding forth and pledging their loyalty under the influence of uh, the cousin of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan to the Erdogan regime. What should we make of that development? I see it as just a, back to the idea the Muslim Brotherhood moved along a broad front, and they always find the weak chink in the armor, and that's what they head for. They're brilliant at what they do. Frankly, the problem with America is we see war as, an influ as not an influence operation, but as something that's done with bullets and bombs and high tech. And at that, we excel. But we don't even seem to recognize that there's another form of war that we're facing. You can't beat a civilizational. You can't beat a civilizational enemy by just bullets and bombs, and that's what they understand, and we don't seem to understand at all. It's somewhat discouraging. It is discouraging. Uh, it is, despite our best efforts to uh, arouse our leaders as well as our countrymen, and um, few do it better than you, Bill Warner. We are so grateful to you for not only the the body of work that you have uh, produced at politicalislam.com, but uh, for your willingness to take time to share it with us from time to time. I hope you'll be willing to do so often in 2018. And thank you for the full hour of conversation today. It's been most illuminating. And I hope it's uh, the beginning of uh, the kind of course correction that the president seems to want to make in this regard, and among others, in his new national security strategy. A Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Come back to us soon. I hope the rest of you will do the same. 
tomorrow, same time, same station. Until then, this is Frank Gaffney. Thanks for listening. From the nation's capital, you've been listening to Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. 